It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up... Tories in turmoil. Rishi Sunak defends his emergency legislation as the right approach, but pressure mounts within the party after resignations and rows. Boris Johnson launches an emotional defence of his leadership during the pandemic, saying it was simply not right to say he didn't care. And let's get slayed. Aldi has been branded ludicrous after a customer was asked for ID when buying a range of, wait for it, mince pies. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. It looks like the game's over for Rishi Sunak. He stunted up a press conference today to tell the world he's still on top of stopping the boats. He claims he's reduced the number of boats coming by a third. He says he's changing all sorts of laws to make sure that illegal migrants and asylum seekers can absolutely, definitely, and for sure, be sent to some country that very few people had even heard of until a couple of years ago. Even as he was saying the words, I found myself wondering if he was just trying to take my mind off Boris Johnson, who was appearing for the second day at the COVID inquiry and making more waves for the current Prime Minister. Is Rishi Sunak actually serious? Does he think we're all gullible fools? People he can promise things to, but never deliver. People who believe that he shouldn't have been Prime Minister, but who now miraculously have changed their minds. Most of Sunak's own party don't believe him. Many of them are already plotting to remove him. And there's open warfare going on in the shires, where no one in their right mind believes that this government has a snowball's chance in hell of actually winning the next election. So what do we do now? Answers on a postcard, please, because tonight we'll be asking you and a cast of brilliant guests why we seem to have a ruling class that doesn't have a scooby-doo of where we are going and how to fix all of the problems. We've also got the ginger winger back to tell us why he was forced to leave the country. Apparently, Prince Harry thinks it's not safe for him here or his family. We'll also keep an eye on Donald Trump, who's appearing at a courthouse somewhere in the United States. You know it to be true. And we'll tell you why a Labour councillor thought it was a great joke to post a message suggesting a Jewish event in Bristol should be blown up. Those lefties just don't know when to stop, do they? We've got one hell of a show for you as we attempt to work out where we go. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. And don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV. And on the phones, we do want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost you at the national rate. Now, Rishi Sunak has doubled down in his defence of his controversial Rwanda policy, dubbing it the toughest immigration law ever. Have a listen to this. 
Let me just go through the ways that individual illegal migrants try and stay. Claiming asylum, that's now blocked. Abuse of our modern slavery rules, blocked. The idea that Rwanda isn't safe, blocked. The risk of being sent to some other country, blocked. And spurious human rights claims, you'd better believe that we've blocked those two because we're completely disapplying all the relevant sections of the Human Rights Act. Sounds pretty ambitious, doesn't it? Uh, and who would think, watching that, that this is not a massively big plan that's all going to work terribly well? Let's talk now, though, to Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight, Bob Seeley, to see what he's got to say about it. Bob, a very good evening to you. Welcome. Hi, hi Mike. Uh, good evening to your listeners and viewers. Great show last night, by the way. Uh, great panel. Yes, thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry to sound so negative about Rishi Sunak. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to kind of um, say that his, his, his party is over, but I'm less and less convinced every time he tries to convince me that he's going to do any of these things, you know, because he's got a track record now of making promises that he doesn't really keep. OK, look, I mean, I heard your intro. It's fair comment and all that. Look, it's, it's a free country, free speech, so you're welcome to say that. Um, I don't buy it personally, so I disagree with what you have to say. Okay. And when it comes to keeping promises, we've got inflation down to under half, um, we've got debt down, and the economy's growing. So we are hitting our targets. Um, small boats, look, it's a package of measures. Rwanda's one element. It's a very high-profile element, but it's one element of it. And unlike most other European countries where you've got illegal immigration being 80, 90, 100% up over the year, we're down 30%. So actually, our lack of success is much, much more successful than most other European countries. Yeah, but when you listen to what that sounds like, it doesn't sound like a very logical statement, does it? Your lack of success is more successful than other countries. And that's the best you can right, come up I, with. Look, I'm putting it... OK, Mike... OK, Mike, I was putting it in terms of negatives because that's what you're talking in. Yes. When we said we were going to get uh, illegal migration down, it's down 30% this year. Illegal entry, small boats are down a third this year, yeah? If you look at other countries, they're up in Europe between 80 and 100% on average. Mm. Most other people would kill to have our success over the past year. Does that mean the, the planes to Rwanda have gone? No. Rwanda is primarily a deterrent because if you come to this country but you end up in Rwanda, it's a very, very visible sign that that's not a great idea to come to this country illegally. Yes. But there's lots of other things happening as well, including more work with the French, who are difficult, but we have to work with them because they're, they're our neighbours, whether we like it or not, and doing treaties and deals and sending back migrants to countries like Albania, where you've had 90% reduction in illegal migration. So the facts are speaking for themselves, we're reducing it. The problem is not solved, but unlike in the rest of Europe, it is being reduced. Yes, but that unfortunately might be true, but unfortunately it doesn't matter, because if you tell me there are fewer Albanians in the country, you should have been down in Westminster when they celebrated National Albania Day last week, when there was a I, couple, I of, well, there was a couple of thousand of them driving around and bringing London to a standstill. Um, they weren't going anywhere. We've also, we've also got, um, just this week, um, 
uh, the two RAF bases, which are now going to be taken over for use by migrants who are already here, um, which people are not happy about. And I know that, you know, that's people who have already got here. And if you're reducing by a third the numbers coming illegally, you're talking about, what, maybe 15,000, no more than 20. When you've got 750,000 net migration coming in legally, it's like a drop in the bucket. Oh, it? that's a different subject. But it's not that's a different, different subject, subject, Bob. Let's it's the same about, subject. Let's, let's, let's talk about legal migration in a minute. Right. But you're just throwing everything in. You're getting this big bucket and you're trying to pour it over my head. Great, I'm not trying to fine, pour it over your head. I'm just trying to present take, it to you. Can we take the buckets? Yeah. But can we take the bucket? It's one bucket at a time. Okay. okay? I'm in a um, small bucket. Let's start with the uh, illegal immigration bucket, which okay. you're attempting to pour, and right. I'm trying to avoid, OK? okay. Uh, right. I've given you the, the facts of it, that yep. we are getting the numbers down yes. at a time when the rest of Europe, they are going up sharply. Yeah, no, I get that, I want the Rwanda. I want the Rwanda policy to work. I hope we can get it through. Yes. But the reality is we're reducing the numbers as it, it is. Now, ask yourself this question, Mike. You are knocked off, that's probably a polite way of putting it, with the Conservatives. Do you think the Labour Party would make this better or no, much worse? No, absolutely not. Because they will undo everything that we're trying to no, do. No, I have absolutely no faith whatsoever in the Labour Party, and I think it would be an absolute okay. bloody disaster, OK? But this is why I'm trying to egg you guys Thank on you. to do what the public wants in order so yeah. that you will be voted for. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So I thank you. I think you're calling it tough love, yes? Yes, exactly. And you're used to that, Bob. You can handle no, no, it. No, we love... No, we love a bit of tough love. <laughs> so, so I mean, um, all, sorry, I'm, all I'm uh, saying uh, is, is that as, as I represent the people, and I know some of your colleagues don't think that that's true, I, I, I listen to them, I hear what they say. For them, the whole immigration yeah. bucket is one bucket. And even though you'd like to separate it okay. into other smaller buckets, it doesn't matter. It's all one big issue. OK, uh, I, I buy that, and, and look, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that, but I also try to speak for the people because 56% of those who voted on the Isle of Wight voted for me in the last election, yeah. um, and they have a, a lot of concerns. Some of them, you know, are, are immigration-based. Some of them are others. Um, so I get, I get the sense that we have to deliver on this because I want to deliver, and I want to be one of those people that, frankly, under-promises and over-delivers yeah. are not one of those pretty awful people that overpromise and they never deliver. So I try to deliver yes. for folks on the island and I try to be part of a team that delivers nationally. Let's come to legal migration. I'm not going to defend the legal migration numbers. They're way, way, way too high. Mm. And we need to be getting it down to something below 200,000 and preferably around the 100,000 mark. On this issue, I will have a bill, which I'm going to try to bring as a 10-minute rule bill. It's not going to become law, but I'm trying to get it in our manifesto that will give Parliament, every MP, will vote to set legally binding a migration and asylum targets. Mm. So, Mike, every member of Parliament will have to go back to his or her constituency and say why they voted for 700,000 or 50,000 yeah. or a million or 10, whatever the number, because you are right on this. It's too much. And until the politicians become very directly responsible, they not, they're not going to own the problem. So I want them to own the problem. So that's why I wanted to take these separately, because they're separate issues. Yeah. The illegal immigration stuff, we've got to drive down to zero. We're not going to get it to zero, but we need to get it into the low thousands. We're the only party that's ever likely to do that. And however much people want to give us a kicking at the moment, there is not a single problem a single challenge, a single issue that the Labour Party will not make markedly worse.
Yeah, I totally so agree with you, Bob. Our best. I, I, I know that, and, and I know yeah. that uh, that you are one of those MPs who does work hard for the constituents, and I get that. Uh, and I wish that you were more similarly in Cabinet and the people in Cabinet were more concerned about the people because they don't appear to be. But listen, I've got to run, so thank you so much. Bob Seeley yeah. uh, in the Isle of Wight, he's going to put in some laws, he says, to make actual MPs responsible for the decisions that they make when it comes to legal immigration. I think that's a good idea. Let me introduce you now uh, to the panel, uh, which has joined me, watching closely their broadcaster and psychotherapist Lucy Beresford, journalist and broadcaster Sam Dowler, and columnist at Spikes Online, Ella Whelan. Ella, let me ask you first, um, what did you make of what Bob Seeley had to say? Um, he's got a lot of buckets to deal with there. I don't think he's got enough room in the house for them, to be honest, and I don't think you can stop them being poured over him. <laughs> I kept thinking Mrs Bucket. Anyway, but I think Bob Seeley is the classic, is taking, doing what Conservatives at the moment do best, which is trying to pretend like they get you. Yeah. you know, pretend like... Um, we know, hold our hands up. We know we did wrong, um, but actually we didn't do wrong because you know the whole idea that this that you know, what's being made at the moment is some kind of victory, as if you would be slapped on the back for saying that you are the yeah. least worst right. in Europe. When we know that there is a big issue of immigration, illegal immigration yeah. in Europe, it's a big talking point to say that you're not quite at the bottom of the list isn't a victory. But I think actually more importantly is that. The thing that's frustrating me about the debate around immigration is one pretending like Rwanda's the be-all and end-all yeah, thing when everybody knows it isn't. But it's also that the Conservatives and the Labour Party have to come out with some kind of ideological vision on immigration. It is one big issue. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely it right. Is. Because the question is, what do, you, what do you think immigration should serve? Should it be used as an instrumental means to plug gaps in the labour market? Do you take, as I would, a more liberally internationalist approach to it about sort of thinking about really what it means to go and become a citizen somewhere else or work somewhere else? Do you want to promote that? Or is this around about resources? Maybe it's all three. But I don't, I don't ideologically know what the Conservatives think about immigration. No. I certainly don't know well, what Labour thinks about it. I don't think they're of one mind. Lucy, clearly there's all sorts of, uh, you know, sort of ravines in the middle of the Conservative Party where some believe that, you know, we shouldn't be leaving the ECHR. You've got Suella Braverman over here saying that they should leave it and we should get on with, you know, being much, much tougher. I don't think the Conservatives have any particular ideology about immigration, do they, anymore? But the problem is, neither does the electorate. And what I worry is that the Conservatives are trying to answer a problem that they think the electorate is asking or posing. Oh. But in fact, in polling, uh, across the, the year, actually there have been different views about immigration and also different views about legal migration, mm. that actually lots of people think that the figure is too high. Yeah. Until you say, do you want better qualified doctors? Do you want people to come in and work in the hospitality sector or in the care sector? And at that point, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely want those people. Yeah. Well, that's why so I they make ask a change. people in and polls. That's why I shouldn't ask them that's right. polls because they give you stupid answers. But it gives, it, well, it, a poll is only ever snapshot of public opinion yeah. at any one time. So that's the issue around legal migration um, and the idea that actually governments of all stripes haven't actually been very honest with people about saying why we need yeah. to have as much as we have. Right. But at the same time, with illegal migration, you can understand that there is a large sector of the electorate who are saying, this is just unfair. Yeah. 
we live in this particular way. We follow the rules. We abide by uh, the, the structures. We queue. Mm. And here are people who are jumping the queue. Yeah. And what you've got is a government who's trying to appeal to all those different yeah. factions. So no wonder the common parlance would be that it's slightly schizophrenic. I, I'm not very comfortable using that word, but I have heard it yeah. talked about in this week. I think the but there is, is. A, there is a division. And because the electorate is divided, the government hasn't got an answer of how to meet those different Well, because the government has botched this for such a long time. Sam, I mean, we've got a situation now, for example, where most people had no idea that if you came here on a student visa, you could bring some dependents with you. Rishi Sunak now suddenly says, oh, we're going to stop that. But why the hell was it going on in the first place? Well, I mean, let's, I mean, let's not forget that if you come here on a student visa and you're going to university, you're paying about three or four times what um, British people are paying for, um, for your tuition. Maybe. But if we talk about illegal immigration, especially Rwanda, it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick that, and all it has does, all it has done now is expose more problems within the Conservative Party. Yeah. Now we have Suella standing up in Parliament saying whatever she's saying, and then going on the BBC this morning and and, and basically bad mouthing Rishi. Yeah. And then Rishi saying the opposite. And again, it's all to do with Rwanda, which yeah. in itself is supposed to be a deterrent to stop people coming. It's like it's like, it's like a house of cards. Well, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's ridic it is ridiculous. It is because it's like they're obsessed with it. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, it's. I mean, I, I when I heard that Rishi Sunak was calling a press conference, I thought, oh. Maybe he's going to resign. This would be good. Um, and then all it was was to say, oh, no, 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 we're definitely sticking with the Rwanda plan, which everybody thinks is an absolute crock of nonsense and is going nowhere. But he's still hanging on to it like it's like the, the sort of the golden orb that's going to save his career. Well, you know how when you have a toddler that starts a bit of a crying tantrum yeah. in the supermarket and no one takes any notice, mother, <laughs> has, mother has said, uh, I'm going to ignore I've the bad behaviour. Exactly. That's what the toddler has to do. I, I, no one's looking at me. I'm going to have to up the ante oh. and cry even yeah. louder. And I think that's, well, it's a serious situation because a lot of this new announcements are, are I think, really intensely illiberal, you know, upping the sort of salary for people's you know, mm. wives or you know, mm. dependents, whatever, is gonna, it's gonna screw over a lot of people in ways that I don't think should make us proud or satisfied. But there's also this sort of fundamental issue, which is that so much of the current problem with illegal uh, immigration, illegal migration, is down to a very simple inability to have a proper processing centre that isn't full of some kind of disease in the tanks. Well, exactly. Have a proper filing system within the Home Office. Things that, you know, we used to, I think I was on your show a while ago, Mike, in which someone said, you know, there used to be <laughs> centres in which yeah, we did, did. it, it but, fell but into disrepute with something were... like Yarl's Wood because they just yeah. treated people badly. Right. But that doesn't mean that, I think that Rwanda is just this sort of bizarre scheme that's come out of nowhere and we're now in a situation in which the Rwandan government mm. seems to be calling the shots because Rwanda is <laughs> yeah. saying, well, if you break any laws, I'm afraid right. we won't be able but to also, do it. But also yeah. the, num the numbers are getting bigger of the, of the people who are yet yeah. to be processed. So why aren't they putting more money into, yeah, into processing mean, them again, quicker and sorting that can, out first? I think we can blame the processing problem because there's a lot more people coming now. You know, this is a business that we're dealing with. We're no longer dealing with, you know, tired and hungry people trying to flee a war and trying to get to, you know, some part of North London because they've got a member of their family there. This is a business where they're making millions and millions of pounds every single week. They're trafficking people. They're trafficking human beings. And they're not going to stop. It's like trying to stop drug dealers mm. unless you actually make it stop. I don't think... Processing there's, more people is the answer. Well, there's there's a difficult sort of truth that no one wants to admit at the heart of this, which is that a lot of the you know a lot of the people who travel on small boats are economic migrants. A lot of them are young men who are coming yeah. to they're not not necessarily for nefarious reasons, but they're coming to earn a bit of money, work in building science, work wherever, and then go home with the money. And they're filling gaps in the labour market that people 
won't don't like to admit, but that they use and need. So your cleaners, your you know mm. your your building contractors, all the rest of them. And if we had, if we looked honestly at the situation around legal migration, and inst- and and said, what is it? What are the kind of skills we need? What are the kind of people we yeah. want to open up to? But instead of doing, and then you might have a different situation. But instead, what we're doing now is the suggestion of raising the limit on legal migration to basically the only people who can come here who've got. Five PhDs. Exactly, and they're, like and, that, they're, and, they're not the, and they're not the and they're not the people who are going to be doing the jobs that either British yeah. people don't want to but do, or they don't want to do, or the, or the, or the but don't no want to pay being for. Done. It didn't used to be done. I mean, you know, we everybody knows that most of the guys driving around on scooters delivering food are probably illegal. Um, but we didn't used to have loads of people driving around on scooters delivering food. Exactly. I find them intensely annoying actually, <laughs> because every time you try and drive a car down the street, you're getting swarmed by these guys that didn't used to actually have, that wasn't a business before. The now it is, is a business and it's and it's almost entirely staffed by illegal immigrants. We were being treated very badly as well, we have to remember, who are, you know, working for pennies. Um, well, they're all very keen to do it. Cars. And very also, keen but also, to the, do also it. the companies behind them, like Delivery, for example, take no responsibility for what for what happens with with the drivers. They're all very keen and to so, do it. Nobody's yeah, forcing them to do it. It's not like a press game. Yeah, but if you, know, you, you don't have, if you don't have a Ethiopia and next you're driving around tooting with a piece of. And, we, and we all know that the Rwanda scheme isn't really going to make a dent no, in any of that. But the problem is that human beings, we have very short attention spans. Most people are actually not really interested in the day-to-day minutiae of politics but they just like to know that something is being done. Yeah. So if you have a headline-grabbing initiative that says, we're going to send people to another country, for most people, that's all they want to know. But now, they want to know, well, why haven't you actually delivered yeah. well, on that thing? Problem. That you because it's pride. It's, it's the problem. pride. It's pride. It hasn't very, worked. So I've got a very short attention span, but don't worry, because you guys will be back, but I've got to go, otherwise I'll be in trouble. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Do not move anywhere, because after the break, we're going to delve into Bojo's second day in the hot seat as the COVID inquiry rumbles on. And we'll tell you which supermarket has caused outrage for insisting that you need an ID for, wait for it, a mince pie. See you after after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. A defiant Boris Johnson today defended carving up Britain into tiered lockdowns and insisted the Eat Out to Help Out scheme was, in his words, not a gamble. On his second day at the COVID inquiry in West London, Boris admitted the tier system did not work and said, I'm very sad about that. I don't think that I uh, thought that that scheme in itself was a, uh, a particular gamble at the time. And I, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't presented to me uh, as such, nor am I confident that there is very substantial evidence that it did indeed add to the uh, to the R. Though you know, I defer to what the, your, your inquiry has uh, has, dis- has discovered. But I, I can't see anything that conclusively shows uh, that it made a, a, a big difference at the time. It wasn't presented to me as something that would. Joining me now is the Spectator's political correspondent, James Hill, and the co-author of The Accountability Deficit uh, from Us For Them, Arabella Skinner. Uh, good evening to both of you. Um, another r- sort of riveting day, I suppose you might say, in uh, Boris Johnson's testimony. A lot of people have been saying, surely the Prime Minister, who was involved in so much at the heart of the COVID um, pandemic, should be spending more than two days talking about it. But I don't know about you, James, but I- I've had enough to be honest. I'm quite happy not to see him on e- uh, saying anything else. Well, this is just the first module, unfortunately, Mike, so we're going to see much <laughs> more of it. 
in the coming months and years for what it's worth. But yes, as you say, you know, we thought Boris Johnson would be the kind of great big box office moment. And I have to say, I think from watching two days of testimony, I think that you're probably going to be relieved tonight that actually there wasn't this kind of smoking gun moment yeah. that some there might be. And he's probably going to be happy tonight at how it's gone the past two days. Arabella, how have you seen his testimony? Because I think we saw a very cowed Boris Johnson, didn't we? I mean, lots of people are arguing here at Talk TV, Piers Morgan amongst them, that, you know, it's all fake. He's just sort of faking it for the cameras. He's trying to look contrite, but he doesn't really mean it. Uh, he's just worried about his legacy. Yeah, I think, Mike, there were actually moments where I had a level of sympathy with Boris Johnson, which was an, a new a new experience yeah. because he was being chastised for not following the science and then chastised for not challenging the science. Yeah. And I wasn't sure which one he was meant to be doing. Yeah. Um, but then he went back into form and said things like children and schools were terrific reservoirs of infection and my normal experiences all came back. Yes, I think that's right. We do want our, our sort of Boris Johnson to behave in a particular way, but I think an awful lot of it, James, as well, that we saw um, certainly some of the questioning um, and some of the reaction to what Boris Johnson said still has the sort of stench of um, hatred about it, that, you know, Boris Johnson is treated differently than almost everybody else, that somehow he's hated more than other people, he's loved more than other people. He's not really like anybody else, is he? Well, I think that, uh, you know, if you came into this uh, the inquiry disliking Boris Johnson beforehand or really liking Boris Johnson beforehand, I think your your mind is unlikely to have been particularly changed by these past two days. Uh, I think you're right, particularly this afternoon, I think, you know, the lines of questioning from certain groups, uh, from some of those that are bereaved family representatives, uh, from some of those representing, uh, you know, different, you know, like the ethnic minority group, uh, different rep representing the different bits of the union, etc. Certain lines of questioning were obviously much more hostile. So I imagine if you were a Boris Johnson fan, you'd be much more sympathetic to that. But I do agree with what Arabella says, which is that, you know, given the way in which this was an unprecedented crisis of modern times, uh, I think that supporters of Boris Johnson and members of the current government will be kind of relieved that there is a sort of sense of, well, you know, Everyone can be wise in retrospect, in hindsight, but actually at the time who was saying this and they did have to kind of veer their way through this unprecedented crisis, particularly in March 2020, when so much of this was unknown. And frankly, when a lot of expertise was saying, actually, guys, we can't lock down the country and can't get away with this. So I do think that, uh, as you say, you know, so at the end of this day, you know, Boris Johnson uh, will probably will hopefully regard it as an exceptional crisis and one which we should judge him by a different set of standards than perhaps normal government. Well, that's right. And I think Arabella as well, that, you know, he was quite rightly sort of defending some of the things that he was quoted as saying because he was saying them in order to sort of test out the opposite view or he was saying them in a, in a room where he was having an argument with people about what to do as opposed to what he was saying actually in uh, documents or what he was saying in, in sort of policy discussions. I think that's very, very valid, Mike, um, in that they were definitely um, taking taking things that were written in a very different way. However, one of the things that did worry me hugely about the line of questioning from both Boris Johnson and the KC is they are taking a lot of things as evidential and they are assuming that we have the evidence for it. In the clip you played at the very beginning, Boris Johnson was saying to him, oh, you may have evidence that shows that the circuit break, um, doing the tier system made a difference. Well, I'd love to see that evidence because both Boris Johnson and the KC kept saying we have a learning from the spring of 2020 and we have a learning that we needed to lock down harder and faster. But but where is that learning? I've well, never seen that learning. 
I don't know whether there's any evidence to actually show that. And this came up again and again when they talked about circuit breakers. They said we needed to go on a circuit breaker because we need to do it early. And Casey said, well, we'd never know what happened. But we do know what happened because Wales did a circuit breaker. And Wales then had to go into full lockdown. So we, we are, it feels like Boris Johnson and the inquiry are not using the evidence we actually have. For example, Scotland did different things to England, Wales did different things. We have case studies and they really should be looking and comparing these things. Yes, absolutely right. And also, um, James, let's have a look at what Boris said when he was asked about Partygate, because he kind of said that that was all kind of blown out of proportion. Um, this one really annoyed Piers Morgan. Um, so for me, it was well worth doing. Let's have a look. The, the version of events that has entered the popular consciousness about what is supposed to have happened in Downing Street is a million miles from the reality of what actually happened in Number 10. And I speak on behalf of, I, I know, uh, of hundreds and hundreds of hard-working uh, civil servants uh, who thought that they were following the rules. And uh, I, I know, uh, I, I don't think have been properly characterised by some of the, uh, not just the media coverage, but the, the, the dramatic representations that we're now having of this are absolutely absurd. And that's absolutely right. But one of the things, James, that I think may come back to haunt him, and apologies in advance to anyone of a, of a sort of nervous disposition, um, when he was quoted as saying, fuck you, Daily Mail, uh, despite the fact that he absolutely now writes for the same Daily Mail, uh, there might be a few phone calls being made, I suspect, this evening of apology. Yeah, I mean, this was, I mean, one of the, the more heartfelt apologies. I certainly can uh, believe that. You know, yeah. the Daily Mail columnist Boris Johnson having to apologise to his current employer. But look, I mean, I think the clip you just played was, you know, I think Boris Johnson, it seems in that clip, is thinking, uh, no doubt, yeah, honestly, about the months and several, you know, two years of hard work that went into it. And it sounds, from talking to people that are in around that time, absolutely awful. It sounds on a scale of wartime, really, really horrible, nasty decisions, long, long hours, not much pay, pretty grueling conditions. And there were times, though, regardless, when the rules seem, well, have been broken, as, as proven by you know police fines, as proven by the Privileges Committee investigation, etc. And so I think that although, you know, one can sympathise with the conditions that those at the top of government went through um, and would say, you know, frankly, there wouldn't be one for me uh, in terms of I wouldn't want to do that myself. Equally, Boris Johnson was responsible for the very draconian restrictions under which many people across the country were fined, under which many people obeyed lockdown rules. So the problem is with this argument is that Boris Johnson has been hoist by his own petard. And the same is true of the inquiry. I was chatting to one MP today who was just saying, you know, look, this inquiry we're going on now, we can call it a farce, we can call it a charade, but it was Boris Johnson's government that set it up in the first place, that gave it the terms of reference, yeah. that gave it Baroness Hallett as the judge. And they are the ones who gave the green light to spend these millions of pounds on it. So although I think one can sympathise and empathise with Boris Johnson when he talks about the efforts that went into it, completely honestly, on the other hand, he was the one who let all this get the show off the road. Yeah. No, it's a very good point. Arabella, final one to you. Um, are you looking forward to Rishi Sunak? I think he's up next week. 
Yes, um, I think, well, I'm looking forward to the fact it's the last week of this module because it seems like it's been going on forever. But um, I think Rishi actually um, will be expecting quite a lot of uh, challenge on Eat Out to help out because everyone seems very keen to uh, to dump, dump any growth in September, October time into his lap. Um, and I would really hope to hear... Um, the um, Rishi Sunak and the inquiry actually looking at proper figures and seeing did it genuinely make. Yes, I think we've just lost Arabella there. But um, listen, James, thank you very much indeed, and thank you, Arabella. Uh, notwithstanding that, we will be bringing you more from the COVID inquiry, of course, next week as it does continue, uh, and we do see Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. But right now, we're just a couple of weeks away, aren't we, uh, from the Christmas uh, celebrations? It is the most wonderful time of the year, surrounded by family friends, gifts, celebrations. But what about the most important part? The food. But be warned, because before you head to do your Christmas food shop, make sure you take your ID with you. Because ridiculously, apparently, we're going to need to prove our age to buy a range of mince pies from Aldi. If it were me, I would have given my resting Grinch face. Uh, do you think I should see how many of the 4.5% brandy-filled pies it would take for me to get completely sloshed? Well, uh, we might get some into the studio. What I can tell you is that if you are going to buy them, be careful of the sell-by date, because uh, I bought some mince pies a little while ago, uh, and they were sell-by dated at the end of November. Absolute nightmare. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham. The Met have announced a new campaign increasing patrols, visits and other activities during Hanukkah to support those in the Jewish community who feel vulnerable at this time because of what's going on uh, in Gaza. And we discussed the academic and former Labour councillor who called for someone to blow up a conference plan by Jewish Labour because she called it a joke. She's now had to apologise and called it a terrible mistake in awful taste. I think that's the bloody understatement of the night, darling. See you in three. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham, an academic and former Labour councillor who called for someone to blow up a conference planned by the Jewish Labour movement has called it a joke. She's apologised and said it was a terrible mistake in awful taste. You're kidding me. Harriet Bradley, a former Bristol councillor, posted above a post on X advertising new speakers confirmed for the conference in London next month. And some of those speakers included Shadow Cabinet members Wes Streeting, Bridget Phillipson and Pat McFadden and a range of other high-profile Labour figures. It's quite extraordinary that somebody with a profile in the Labour Party, a political party, uh, would put something like that out on social media. Joining me now to discuss this and lots more is barrister and writer Stephen Barrett. Good evening, Stephen. Very nice to see you. Hi, it's an, it's an honour to be here. Well, listen, I've been trying to get you on this show for quite a long time, so I'm very glad that we finally managed to do it. Um, as ever, the anti-Semitism movement becomes ever more incredible to me. When somebody showed me this earlier on this afternoon... I thought this must be some kind of ridiculous parody. Surely to God, you wouldn't have somebody who was an academic um, attached to a university actually saying, let's blow up the building. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's an offence apart from anything else. Yes, well, I mean, two, two points. I mean, the first one is just to remember, because I don't really like the fact that it's called anti-Semitism, because okay. I wonder why we separate one type of racism out yeah. from another type of racism. It's just racism. Yes. That's, that's all it is. You know, it's anti-Jewish racism. And all racism is a pernicious human evil. I mean, it's monstrous. All, all racism is, is horrendous. And so I don't know how it's come back. But the, the second point is it's very important to remember that the leader of this gentleman's party, Keir Starmer, 
prosecuted the chap who sent the tweet about the Robin Hood airport in yes. Nottingham, mm. which, was, which was a joke. Yeah. I mean, this is this is in I mean personal subjective opinion, but there, there, there is nothing funny about calling for this event to be blown up. I mean, no. it, it's obviously a monstrous thing to do. But you know, the leader of his party prosecuted somebody for far less than that. Yes. Well, Where are the prosecutions? Where yes, are you're you're absolutely right to talk about it being racism. But the febrile atmosphere that we currently live in, uh, which includes the Metropolitan Police saying that they're going to be, you know, helping Jewish communities in this country to celebrate Hanukkah. I mean, this has never been a problem as far as I know. I mean, I grew up in North London. Um, I've always had very many Jewish friends in London. I learned, went to live in New York and I said this on the show yesterday. For 10 years I was there and I considered myself an honorary Jew for living there because New York used to be very much the kind of, the, you know, the very big Jewish centre of American um, society. But I now look at New York, the, the, the city I used to live in, and despair, where people are fighting members of the NYPD. I just don't quite understand it. Tonight I'm looking at something that you may not have seen yet, but a sort of a, a, a baying mob of people shouting and screaming at Keir Starmer as he's walking down the road, you know, because they're from a pro-Palestinian march. And you're thinking, where, where is it? when is this going to stop? Yeah, and, you know, when humans are at the point where they're baying, that's that's a bad point. Yes. And, you know, in many ways, this is this is ridiculous. I mean, we all decided very long ago that anti-Jewish racism was, was wrong. Mm. I, mean, I, 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 mean, I, I appreciate I'm, I'm not in the first flush of views, but, you know, I, I went to an anti-Holocaust thing when I must have been 11. I mean, right. this is ages ago. We, right. we, we all know that this is absolutely wrong. Right. How on earth have people managed? to get themselves into this position. Allegedly intelligent people. Yeah. And, and the, the real odyssey, Mike, is that, is that the people of Gaza are also the victims of Hamas. Mm. So th this, is, this is just absurd. You can't say, I hate Jews, in order to protect the people of Gaza. Well, right. I mean, you can. The humans can do anything. But that, that's not a rational position. Yeah. Because the people of Gaza are also victims. We had evidence yesterday. We've seen compelling evidence that the ordinary people of Gaza are having their aid stolen, yeah. their, you know, their fuel stolen by these terrorist monsters. And mm. so it's just, it's simply irrational to harass Keir Starmer because, because he, I mean, he's actually, I think he's done very little. But, you know, I don't understand how we've got to here or what we're doing. No. But it's clearly very wrong. It and is. I, I like to not be political in, in public, and I used to only have a few things that I would I would talk about. But from the seventh of October, fighting anti-Jewish racism is something that yeah. this is just absolutely wrong. I mean, I, I, unlike you, I, I grew up in, in in rural Worcestershire, so I actually never met a Jew until mm. I went to university. Um, my first boyfriend was a Jew, um, and and I, I just got on. There's just nice people. This is this is good. I mean, oh, as yeah. so many types of people are. I mean, yes. this is. Well, you know I mean, I remember. I mean, we've all we've all got our crosses to bear. I mean, I went to Catholic school for my sins, and it wasn't until I went to an FE college uh, when I was about eighteen, um, having um, just done my O levels and, and wanting to go and do different A levels, that I realised there were people in the world who weren't Catholic, because literally that was the only you know, group of people that I'd met, and it was a brilliant sort of discovery. It wasn't like, oh my God, these people are dreadful; they're all different. You know, it was kind of an eye opener. But I wonder where. You say we don't know how we got here, but how do we get back away from it? How do we recover sanity? Rules. It's that. It's that simple. Laws. We need to. We need to return to clear rules, which are enforced. 
That's how you return to sanity. Um, if you look at something like the BBC, it's, mm. it's collapsing because the rules around impartiality are not clear. Right. Once you make a rule, and I don't have, you make it fat with words. Yeah. It, has, it has too many words. Right. And then, then all of a sudden, there's doubt. And you've, yes. you've instituted doubt into what the rule is. Yeah. And then people don't know what it is. So you get no enforcement. And then bad people who are eternally attuned to just sort of noticing when, when, when goodness is, is in a state of, of, of weakness go, oh, I'll be more bad. Yes. You know, and, and that's what we're seeing with these marches. Every week they get worse. Every week because of the inactivity of the Metropolitan Police, they get worse. Yeah. And today was pretty bad. I think I saw, I would estimate a four-year-old, he might be five, held, holding a megaphone, being made to hold a megaphone, saying absolutely hatred, hate, hatred and hateful things. Now, I know children. Children are not evil, so that child right. is not inherently um, filled with that. They're just chanting what they're told to mm. chant. Mm. But until until we deal with this, until somebody stands up and, and, and actually, you know, arrests someone, yeah. then we're never going to get... It, it's going to get worse. I remember the... I mean, you say New York, so I mean, you'll know better than me, but New York got itself into a terrible place mm. in sort of the 80s and the 90s, and yeah. it fell into absolute sort of chaos. And the only way out of it was clear rules strongly enforced. Yeah. I remember it well because I was living there at the time. Uh, Stephen, listen, we're out of time, but I'd love to get you back on. We've got much to do, much to discuss, much to talk about. Uh, so we'll see you soon. Stephen Barrett, thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's go across the pond now, though, because the Donald uh, has been back in court this evening. Uh, Trump, of course, cast the trial there as corrupt in brief comments to reporters before entering uh, the courtroom. He's been criticising the judge presiding over the trial uh, and, of course, the Attorney General in New York who brought the case against him as well. This is weaponization of justice. This is something that nobody's ever seen to this extent. It's called election interference. It's a sad day for our country that a thing like this can take place. I'm sitting in a courthouse instead of being in Iowa, where I should be, even though I'm leading by about 40 points. Thank you. Joining me now from New York is Fox News commentator Joe Concha. Joe, uh, very good evening to you. Um, uh, it's hey, uh, another day, another dollar for the lawyers, I guess. But um, what's been actually happening and why is he in court today? Well, he's in court today, Mike, because it's a fraud trial happening in New York. You have the attorney general there who ran on being attorney general in New York basically on the premise of getting Donald Trump. Even before any official investigation was launched into anything, she said, elect me and I'll get Donald Trump. And now we're seeing that come to fruition as far as her charge that he overvalued his properties, including Mar-a-Lago, which she says is only worth $18 million. That's in Palm Beach, Florida, one of the most expensive zip codes in the entire country. I would say the tennis court at Mar-a-Lago was probably worth $18 million. Yeah. Mar-a-Lago itself is estimated to be worth more than $100 million. So her case seems very flimsy at best. And today we saw a tax, a tax expert, uh, his name is Eli Bartoff, uh, a local professor at one of the universities in New York, uh, saying that he thinks that Donald Trump did absolutely nothing wrong as far as these valuations are concerned. But it seems to be a fixed fight at this point. I'm not sure it'll matter very much. Yeah, no, exactly right. So was this, was this um, uh, we were hearing from witnesses on behalf of Donald Trump tonight. That's correct, yes, yeah. including that tax expert uh, who said these kind of valuations really have a lot of flexibility, a lot of wiggle room. Uh, it's not something that necessarily you could point to and say, ha, it should be this exact dollar amount. It's a very subjective thing, real estate. So 
When you have a judge, however, that uh, absolutely seems to have a real disdain for Donald Trump, when you think of the fact that Donald Trump maybe got 12 percent of the vote uh, in Manhattan, in New York, uh, so therefore it's not exactly a friendly place towards him being so liberal, uh, and the attorney general, again, saying that she was out to get Trump, uh, this just seems to be so weaponized at this point. And all you know is now is that Donald Trump's numbers keep going up every yeah. time he's in court because people see this for what it is. Well, exactly right. And I'd be amazed if it, uh, if it is successful. Um, we've got a couple of other things going on. Just very quickly, Joe, um, we've got uh, Lord Cameron, David Cameron, former prime minister uh, over in the US visiting with Anthony Blinken. There's a lot of noise and, and, and fury around money for Ukraine, it would seem, at the moment, around Joe, whether Joe Biden convinces the country that we should continue, uh, as America, giving more money. What's going on with that? Well, we have the U.S. Congress, and that's controlled by uh, the Republican Party, the, the party that opposes Biden. And they want to tie border security here in the U.S., where we have a significant humanitarian and national security crisis with thousands of people crossing across the U.S. southern border on a daily basis. Uh, we've already had millions enter this country illegally. We don't know who they are or if they're terrorists, for that matter. So the Republicans are saying, OK, if we're going to send billions of dollars to Ukraine so they can protect their borders, then we need to also tie that to billions more going towards border security in our own country. Uh, obviously, this was something that Republicans agreed on, but Joe Biden and Democrats in the Senate do not. Uh, so now we are at a standstill as far as foreign aid going over to Ukraine, where, again, we don't know where exactly that money is going. Is it going towards totally the war? And what's going on with the war, by the way? Russia is stuck. Ukraine is stuck. It is a stalemate. Russia can't get to Kiev. And now we don't know if there's any endgame in sight around this. We could be talking about this 10 years from now about Russia and Ukraine and the war still going on and the U.S. and Britain still putting money into exactly. that war. Exactly. Joe, this is great to talk to you. We've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Joe Concha of Fox News, uh, New York. Uh, and we'll be hearing more from him, plenty more from him, uh, as the weeks go on with the Trump case, of course. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. But do not bloody move. After the break, I'll tell you why I'm fuming. And yet another blunder from our dozy government in the migration department. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Has anyone else ever wondered whether Rishi Sunak has got a self-destruct button? Earlier today, he appeared to press it. Again, in a hastily organised press conference, he stood at a lectern emblazoned with the message, Stop the boats! Which, of course, he hasn't managed to do yet and promised to change all the laws that have so far stopped him from stopping those boats. According to Rishi, it's all going to be OK now and we're going to send loads of illegal migrants to Rwanda. And if you believe that, I've got some swampland in Florida to sell you. The trouble with the Prime Minister's promises is that he doesn't actually keep them. And I'm starting to wonder whether he's beginning to do it deliberately. Because as hundreds and hundreds more illegals flood into the country this week, there's yet more plans to house them in some controversial places. Chief amongst them is RAF Scampton in Lincolnshire, home of the historic and legendary Dambusters. The local West Lindsay Council has been fighting the Home Office for months to try and block their application to transfer 2,000 young male illegal migrants to the historic camp. And now, finally, the Home Office has won. The judge in the case said the government's use of emergency powers to change the use of the land to house migrants was, in their words, entirely appropriate. Civil servants argued that they need to find more accommodation because they have to move people out of block-booked hotels. Well, that's all very well. 
But what's the bloody difference? The RAF barracks won't have locks on them. The men will be free to roam around the local area, where only about 1,200 people live anyway. So they'll more than double the population. And now the same thing has happened in Essex at RAF Weathersfield. Braintree District Council has also lost their case against the Home Office. Campaigners, which includes Sir Edward Lee, the local Tory MP in Lincolnshire, are vowing to fight on. Millions have already been wasted on purchasing land and converting premises up and down the country. And surely now is the time to stop the spending. There's no point in clinging on to the dreams of Suella Braverman, Priti Patel and even Boris Johnson that the Rwanda plan is still a going concern, because it isn't. Far more of a concern is what we're supposed to be doing with the 170,000-odd people waiting to be told whether their asylum claims are going to be processed anytime soon. And what will happen to them if those claims are rejected? We're all being held hostage by a government that seems stuck in the quicksand, and we need a rescue plan, and we need it now. Unbelievable stuff. I mean, we're going to be talking about a great many things in the next hour. We're going to be looking at the front, front page of the papers. Some of you have been asked if we can have confidence in the Prime Minister. Uh, MR says, no, he should never have sacked Suella Braverman. They lost my vote after that, and Labour certainly won't get it either. Uh, and TF says, not unless they stop migrants landing. Um, and all sorts of you have got many, many things to say. But let's see, because uh, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, we're going to race into the second hour to discuss yet more blunders from the BBC. And we'll hear from you as well. So make sure to call in now on the number 0344 499 1000. Have your say. We'll pass it on to everybody else. This is Talk TV. Good evening. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham on talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online. And of course, we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, Philip Schofield refused to cooperate with an inquiry into his affair with a young colleague as ITV is cleared of a cover-up at this morning. Murder and child rapist Colin Pitchfork is too much of a risk to be released and he must stay in prison, thank goodness, according to the parole board. And more blunders from the beam as the news anchor gives the middle finger on air in an X-rated live gaff. Plus, the TV licence fee is set to increase by another tenner. Unbelievable. Now, my panel will be back a little bit later on, so have a good look at what's going on in the papers. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate, but don't forget to make that call uh, because we can tell everybody else what you actually think. But wait for this one. Nobody is going to admit to what I'm about to ask, but it's got to be done. Have you ever been caught short while driving your car, stuck in endless traffic, desperate for a pee, wondering where the next petrol station might be. Well, that's what happened to one man while he was travelling up the A41 in Hertfordshire. Michael Mason was 45 minutes into a two-hour journey when he decided he couldn't wait any longer. And you know what that's like. We've all seen people stopping in all kinds of weird and wonderful places. But Michael was in luck because just before the M25 near Kings Langley, he spotted a lay-by. Job done, he thought. He drove into the rest area, as it's called in the United States, and got on with it. He said this, I made sure nobody could see me and was very, very discreet. He also said he suffers with a weakened prostate. So imagine his surprise when he got a knock on the window when he'd returned to his car. Turns out there was an officer from district enforcement contracted to Decorum Borough Council lurking about in the same lay-by. 
Michael was duly informed that he had committed the enviro crime of littering and was handed a £100 fine. Now, I've heard of Jobsworth and overzealous wardens, but this is really taking the piss, isn't it? According to decorum, urination is classified as litter by the Environmental Protection Act of 1990. Well, that's news to me, and it was also news to Michael. So next time you're looking to relieve yourself on the King's Highway, even if it's behind a bush, don't assume that you're not being watched. That is an amazing story. Incredible. Later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look uh, at The Sun. And we've got uh, page 13 of The Sun, to be precise. Bojo Bites Back is what it says. And it's uh, a series of pictures of the former Prime Minister uh, talking to the COVID inquiry. Partygate dramas, million miles from reality, he says. Lockdown tears didn't work, but it was worth a try. Uh, No warnings, eat out to help out risked lives. And basically, uh, they've given Bojo um, a whole page to delineate precisely what it was that he was being asked. Boris Johnson gave an emotional defence of his premiership yesterday, they say, hitting back at claims he didn't care about the suffering inflicted on the country. And of course, there's a picture as well of the families of victims outside the inquiry uh, as he arrived a little bit early. We'll do more from The Sun and all the other newspapers, of course, as well. Um, But now it's time to talk about the BBC because the TV licence fee will rise by just over a tenner next year. It means the licence fee will go up from an annual £159 to £169.50. And here's what the BBC decided to react about. Live from London, this is BBC News. Britain's former Prime Minister... Oh dear, Uh, that was one of their many news presenters uh, who thought it was a great idea to give the finger to the audience. Unfortunately for her, uh, it was caught on camera. Uh, She later apologised and said that she wasn't actually giving the finger to the audience. Uh, She was giving it to uh, the people in her production unit, which is not a very nice way to talk to your production unit at all. Uh, She says it was just a joke. Uh, But of course she would say that, wouldn't she? Uh, For me, it looks more like this is what the BBC thinks of you. Like that. Um, So there. Now, to discuss this, I'm joined by former BBC Royal Correspondent Michael Cole, who worked at the Corporation for over 20 years, bless him, plus former BBC Top Gear presenter Steve Berry, uh, who knows a thing or two about it as well. Uh, Very good evening to you both, gentlemen. Um, I mean, they really are giving the finger to us, aren't they? Putting another 10 quid on the the licence fee so that they can continue to roll around in uh, obscene luxury uh, in Broadcasting House and up in Salford Quays. Michael, I mean, you know... I don't know whether it's different now from when it was when you were there, um, but they think they're a lawn to themselves, don't they? I don't know what the BBC is bleating about. As you say, it's another tenor on top of this iniquitous poll tax. Now, that was justified when there was one channel or two channels or three channels, but now there are so many channels, I doubt that we could count them. Everybody's their own programme controller, they watch whatever they want. Most of them ignore the BBC. The, B- the young people never watch it. It's only old people and middle, like me, uh, middle-aged people, <laughs> who pay the licence fee, and that's the demographic the BBC despises most. Now, look, when I worked for BBC Television News, which I was proud to do for more than 20 years, uh, the main news bulletin commanded an audience of 12, 13 or 14 million Uh, On big nights, it was 20 million. Now it's less than a million. Mm. When you think about sport, used to be the crown 
the jewel in the crown of the BBC. Now they even struggle to pay for Wimbledon. The sport has gone elsewhere. Do you know something, Michael? When I joined the BBC in 1968, the brigadier who gave us the in induction course, he said of the 28,000 people working for the BBC, only 10% of them had anything to do with programs, and that included the messengers taking the scripts round. Now, today, there are 22,000 people in the BBC. Mm. The difference between 68 and now is that now the programs are made by pr outside production yes. companies. Apart from the news, the BBC hardly makes anything of its own, and yet it employs 22,000 people because it's a bureaucratic nightmare. Mm. It really is. Steve, let me come to you. Uh, something like 400,000 people have stopped paying the licence fee in the last year alone, which by my calculation means they're about 60-odd million quid short of what they would otherwise have. Is that why they're having to put the price up, do you think? Mike, I haven't paid it for years because, like, as Michael said, I haven't used their services. Yeah. They haven't got anything for me. Trust me, when I was there, 20, and I, I wasn't there as long as Michael, I was there for about 11 years, it was the same sort of people you'd encounter. Nice, well-educated, Oxbridge lefty liberal types in corduroy trousers with leather, leather elbow patches who wanted to cater to every single minority but couldn't stand the majority. No. Those British people who voted for Brexit, who live in Barrett Homes, who drive in Nissan Qashqai, who love football. Yeah. But they made programmes for them. And... I think when I get, ever get into this argument with people about the BBC and its place, I use this argument. Imagine the BBC giving a primetime Saturday night show to either Noel Edmonds or Jim Davidson. And those two men, for two decades, ruled Saturday night. Yeah. With House Party, Gen Game and Big Break. Imagine the slightest possibility of either of them two getting on the BBC these days. No way. No. Not a snowball's chance in hell because of all the boxes, them two tick none. But do you know what they used to do? They used to del deliver like 10, 15 million people for the BBC mm. on a Saturday night. Right. It's lost its way. And yes. in, the, in, the, in the modern broadcasting environment, it hasn't got a prayer. It really hasn't. Michael, I think Steve's right. They've forgotten now how to make those kinds of incredibly funny and, and sort of wide-ranging and wide-reaching shows, the comedies that they used to do. I mean, I remember fundamentally sitting down uh, in the sort of 70s as a, as a child with the family and we'd just sit in front of the TV from about sort of, you know... What Bruce Forsyth's generation game until the end of match of the day. And if you were lucky, you might get to stay up for Parkinson. But it was great. And I don't want to sound like a boring old fart who only remembers the good old days, but there's nothing like that now. My children, her, who are teenagers, yeah. don't ever watch BBC yeah. or, any, or any other television station. Uh, I make them watch talk TV, obviously, but, you know, nothing uh, that's an old, an old sort of, you know, legacy TV station. Don't watch it. Yeah, well, Bill Cotton, who was a great television man, he once said to me, he said, the BBC is bread and circuses. Looking yeah. at me, news, he said, you're the bread, I'm the circuses. And right. it was light entertainment, and they catered to a wild, wide spectrum of people. And you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the, the man in the hairy sports jacket and the suede brogues going down the corridor saying, uh, you know, do you think it was entirely right 
of what EIEIO said to head of talks in that meeting. I mean, the politics went on. It was like an Oxbridge college. Yeah. And the thing was, they had tenure. They could never be sacked. They were there forever. And most of them had nothing to do with programs and did very, very little indeed. Uh, it, it's an absolute shame uh, and it's a scandal uh, uh, that we should continue to have to pay for it. Times have changed. The BBC's had a great innings, 101 years, but now it's time for the, if I can use it in this context, for the umpire to raise a finger and point to the pavilion of past glories and say, BBC, you're out. The BBC has to be changed, it has to be destroyed, so that bits of it, the best bits of it, can be saved, yes. but not at the expense of the licence payer. Right, absolutely. Steve, let me come back to you. I mean, is there a possible model that they can come up with? Because I notice now, for example, that some of the shows that they do, um, Question Time being one of them, uh, they put it out now uh, available on iPlayer before it's actually broadcast, which seems to me to be sort of slightly eating yourself. Seems like a bit of an odd thing to do because you're basically saying to the audience, you don't bother waiting for it to be broadcast, watch it whenever you like. Yeah. Well, they have to. It's not the BBC's fault that they have to move to that model. As Michael was saying, the world's moved on, and it's moved on a lot. I mean, you know, I was there 20-odd years ago. It was completely different. Yeah. There were, like, four TV stations available. <laughs> There's been a massive change. But people have asked me about Top Gear. They said, do you think Top Gear will come back? And I keep saying no. And the reason I think no is because the BBC is going to have to move to an ad-funded model. Mm. It's going to have to get its money from advertisers, the same way everybody else does. And what it's going to do is it's going to find it's in a completely... I've worked in both environments. I've worked for the BBC for a long time. Then I worked in, in, in commercial television, yeah. where there was a commercial imperative, and it was all about bums on seats. Right. Very, very different. And it's going to be very hard for a massive organisation like the BBC to make that change, but it either makes that change or it withers and dies. Yeah. It's over if they yeah. don't do that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and we talked about that, uh, the newsreader sticking the finger up, Mariam Mashiri is her name, and she's apologised. And I mean, I'm not particularly worked up about it. Uh, but the same thing happened a while ago, a few years ago, with a BBC weatherman, Thomas Schaffernacker, and he was suspended because he was caught giving the finger to, uh, uh, to, I think it was Simon McCoy who was sitting on the, uh, uh, on the news. Oh, here we go. We've got it here. Let's have a look. 100% accurate and provide all the detail you could possibly want. I've just seen Thomas Schaffernacker <laughs> preparing uh, for it, so I'm not in touch. Oh! Every now and then there's always one mistake. That was it. Now... Now, see, that was the censored version again with him, you know, not, with, you can't show it. I, we can show it, you know, it is after nine o'clock. But, you know, uh, he was suspended when the BBC must have been far more po-faced. Um, but is that their problem? They're now run by some rather, you know, ad average, you know, sort of, I would, I would say, kind of um, not very adventurous and not very interesting and not very good middle managers. Well, I think that they're scared yeah, bang of their shadows. <laughs> Michael, sorry. Sorry, not at all. They're scared of their shadows for a start, Mike, but I actually deprecate this rather vulgar American import, the, uh, the raised middle finger. It is very horrible. You see it, you know, truck drivers might yeah. do that to you on the freeway 
uh, if you if they think you have pulled out in front of them or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really rather horrible. We had a better way of doing things here. I think we probably can remember Baroness Trumpington, who was about <laughs> 95 in the House of <laughs> House of Lords, raising two fingers to somebody whose speech she didn't enjoy. Well, yes. everybody forgave her because she was an old and venerable lady and, and, and quite clever as well. But I think it is a vulgar um, uh, demonstration, I think demonstration of ignorance and a lack of conversation, because at least at, at the football grounds, when people shout out insults, sometimes they're quite amusing. Yes. And that's all we hope for. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, Steve, le leaning on your commercial TV experience, the other story today going around uh, the, the, the houses is the one about Philip Schofield and ITV's internal review. Uh, ITV have apparently hired some very expensive lawyers uh, who have looked very far and wide into ITV, uh, picked up a very nice fat cheque from ITV and have decided that ITV haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, and what is it that Philip Schofield has done wrong? Most of what I've read today is centred on the fact that he had a relationship with somebody we work with. And I can't imagine that anybody working on ITV's mid-morning show could possibly have had a relationship with each other, like, uh, oh, apart from Richard and Judy, oh, and Damon and Ruth. So apart <laughs> from those four, I mean, you know, we were talking about news, BBC newsreaders there. I don't remember Q Edwards ever doing anything on air like, uh, like those two people did that you referred to. Yeah. As far as, I, as far as I'm aware, he had an impeccable broadcasting career and was considered to be, you know, our preeminent presenter of events of national importance. And yet, because of the things that these two men have done outside of the workplace, nothing to do with their employer, they've both got the push. Now, could it be that they don't tick all the boxes? I think it might be. And yet well, other people seem to be able to get away with murder. Well, do you know, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I think there's very little that people get away with nowadays. And I think ITV have been particularly kind of, uh, shall we say, a bit cavalier with getting rid of people because uh, they've, got, they've got a history of doing it. But you're right to say that they're very inconsistent. But I, I find it impossible to, to agree entirely with Steve Michael when he says, you know, he didn't do anything wrong because I think the impact of having a relationship with somebody who's on the team who's not so senior, you know... Ruth and and and, uh, and and Eamon, one thing, you know, Richard and Judy, another thing, but it wasn't Richard uh, and the bloke who was running the messages up and down the stairs, which I think would have been a different show, to be honest. What do you think, Michael? Well, uh, he didn't uh, he didn't consult me, but had he done so, I would have said to him, have a very good chat with your wife about this and then get in a good public relations person because, yeah. as was said quite rightly, uh, he did nothing wrong. And yet he felt obliged to move on. The old BBC, you know, had a, a quite a good rule. And it said that um, man and wife or people who were together, uh, couples, were not allowed to work together. And I think that was quite sensible. Yeah. Rather blew a hole in it when Desmond Wilcox was a producer and he was uh, in a relationship which turned into a very happy marriage with Esther Ransom. Yes. And there were one or two other cases of that kind. But I think it is quite sensible to put a little bit of distance between that. You don't want to have your home life and your work life too tangled up together because it usually ends in something less satisfactory than you hope for. Yeah, absolutely right. Steve, final word from you. Um, how soon do you think before uh, we all get told the BBC is going to be broken up 
Uh, we're going to get rid of the website. We're going to get rid of all the local radio stations. We're just going to do news. That's what I think they should do. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Well, I think that all depends on who gets in next year, rather obviously. Yeah. But I can't, I can't see them seeing out the 2020s in their current form. I think they're going to have to be... The, the changes that have already happened, particularly in local radio, have been incredibly difficult and painful for a lot of people. Mm. But a lot of this isn't... I'm not anti-BBC. I love the BBC. I love Radio 4. I love Six News. I love BBC Radio more than television. Like I said, I don't bother with the TV, but I listen to a lot of their radio. But the changes are going to be difficult. They're going to be painful, but they have to happen to ensure that the BBC could say, I just spent two weeks in the States and public-funded broadcasting there is, as anybody who's been there and sampled it will know, terrible. Mm. The BBC is the gold standard, or it was the gold standard, around the world for publicly-funded broadcasting. Let's hope we can find a way, some way, to preserve that that's acceptable to everyone. Let's see if we can. Steve, good to talk to you. Thank you. Michael Cole, uh, a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for joining the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Coming up next after the break, MP Alberto Costa uh, is going to talk to us about Colin Pitchfork's parole hearing. And Kerry Badenoch claims there's an epidemic of children being told they're trans. That's all coming next. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've just been talking about the Flip Schofield story and we'll be discussing it a little bit later on with the panel because it appears to be the front page of The Sun um, and we'll be telling you uh, why staff were too scared to speak out, apparently. Steve Berry said he didn't think it was a big story, he didn't think Philip Schofield had done anything wrong. Well, um, that may well be, but however... Um the Sun certainly thinks differently. They've got another two pages inside as well. More of that uh, a bit later on. Uh, but right here uh, on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, we're getting prepared to take some calls because lots of you have been getting in touch. But before we hear from you, let's take a sneak peek at tomorrow's Plank of the Week. But they've actually sent more Home Secretaries to Rwanda yes. than they have <laughs> yeah. refugees. Well, I you know, it's ridiculous. I guarantee they will be sending another Home Secretary to Rwanda before <sighs> they send a migrant. I don't think any migrants are going to Rwanda. <laughs> the least they could have... It seems they've sent so many flights. They could have popped, like, a couple on there. There yeah. was space on the flights. <laughs> yeah. It would have saved carbon. They could the even have yeah. actors, couldn't they? I mean, right. things yeah. have come to such a sorry pass. If I were them, I'd be definitely paying some refugees to get on that yeah. plane. You know? I'd be going, you know, put my, have you package them up as a Federal Express parcel and then maybe we could send them and maybe <laughs> if, that would work. If, Nobody would know. Uh, that's Plank of the Week, 7pm tomorrow night, uh, right here on Talk TV. Right now, let's go to the calls, though. John is in West Lothian. Hi, John. Good evening, Mike. Good evening. What can I do for you tonight? Uh, the BBC licence fee. Yes. No, it should not be increased. In fact, it should be scrapped. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and they talk about it being a, a licence fee, in fact. It's a stealth tax on the elderly and everybody else. Yes. And then what did they do with the money? They pay it to Big Mouth Lineker, yep. who will talk and about anybody and anything, earns this vast amount of money. If he believes in so much about social welfare and all the nonsense that he talks, then why doesn't he stand and get himself elected to Parliament and then do it properly? I don't, think, he, I don't think anyone would vote for him, would they? Well, there will be one or two. Yeah. He would, he would, you know, he would never do it because he would have to take such a cut in salary and, you know, against what the Prime Minister and these other people who do put themselves forward to the public 
uh, and try to do a good job. And some of them make mistakes. We all know that. We're all human. But but he thinks he's above all that, and he can just spout forth whatever he likes. Yeah. And I totally, you know, I'm an elderly person, and they don't care damn about me, and they don't do anything for me. Right. They're so woke. They're so left wing. They've, and they actually make up news rather than report news. Yes, I'm afraid they get an awful lot of news wrong at the moment, which doesn't do them any favours. Uh, let's talk to John. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Let's talk to John in Newcastle. Hello, John. Hello, Mike. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, military. I was reading something off the television uh, two days ago, yes. and it talked about our military people, mm. Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever. Yeah. Uh, substandard housing. Now, if this is the Ministry of Defence, I suppose that caters for that. And the, the substandard in housing is, is disgraceful, yeah. apparently. Disgraceful. Yes. And the reality is that it is a shame. And there's as many, apparently, coming into the services as going out mm. now. Yeah. And what I see was, uh, what I've seen in the last few months, and I've just got one the other day, that's made us telephone you. Your veterans need you. That's on the plastic bag that you might fill up. And, uh, you know, with this, that and the other. Because, obviously... There's people possibly, in theory, maybe from the Fusiliers or from the Guards yeah. or even from the Marines. Uh, all they've done is what they've done. They're not mechanics. They haven't done this and they haven't done mm. that. And when they come out, they kind of get a job, a lot of them, because I've seen one or two walking around the city myself. Yes. And uh, it, it's disgusting. It is. A, a lot of them end up homeless. A lot of them end up on the street. And a lot of people think pity, that we should yes, be doing better a, for them. It's a pity they couldn't uh, give them hotels like they do the illegal immigrants oh. and put the illegal immigrants into them particular dwellings. Yes, no, um, that's a very good point and very well made. Thank you, John. Uh, we'll hear more from you, I'm sure, uh, another time. But we've got to move on now because uh, we're going to be looking at the papers very shortly with the panel. But uh, let's talk, first of all, about what happened uh, today. The murderer and child rapist Colin Pitchfork has finally been denied parole and will serve the rest of his life sentence behind bars. We're going to talk now uh, to Conservative MP for South Leicestershire, Alberto Costa, who has been campaigning uh, on behalf of the families of the victims in these terrible murders that Pitchfork um, committed uh, many, many years ago. Um, Alberto, very good to see you. Welcome to the new turbocharged independent Republican Mike Graham uh, from 9 to 11 in the evenings. Um, finally, they've made the right decision, the parole board. Well, firstly, Mike, thank you very much for inviting me onto your excellent programme. And I think the last time we spoke, we spoke about Pitchfork as well. Yes. But, um, Mike, you're right to say that it's important news today because after successive parole board hearings where they chose to release Colin Pitchfork, you'll remember back in 2021, I said to the parole board it was a dreadful error that they chose to release him. Nevertheless, they released him, and within two months, guess what? He breached his licence conditions, was recalled to prison. And then earlier this year, the parole board again had another review of the matter. I was the first MP in modern English criminal history to observe the parole board hearing, so I got to see Pitchfork. And I can tell you that um, I was deeply disappointed when once again they chose to release Pitchfork and I'd had enough. Mm. At that point, I applied to the Secretary of State and I asked him if he would invite the parole board to reconsider its decision and on the grounds that it was irrational. And the parole board uh, were uh, forced to reconsider the, the decision. A, a completely new parole board 
was formed and they listened to all the evidence carefully. And thank goodness, Mike, they've come to the right decision finally on Pitchfork. And they've concluded that now is not the right time to release this dangerous man because upon the evidence that they saw, uh, he could not demonstrate Pitchfork, that is, that he no longer posed a danger to the public. And can I finally say this, Mike? We must never forget the two young women who were raped and brutally murdered by Pitchfork, Linda Mann and Don Ashworth. This isn't about Pitchfork today. It's about those two individuals, the families of those two individuals and the friends who remember those two individuals as if it was yesterday when they were brutally and callously murdered. So it's been a success today to keep Pitchfork behind bars where, as I've said many times in your programme before, he deserves to be. Yes, exactly. And so from what you're saying, it sounds as though they may get another chance for parole again uh, with Pitchfork, because let's not forget, the reason he was recalled the last time was because he was found hanging around outside a girls' school. Um, and, of course, the two victims of his from prior were both 15 years of age. So, sure, I don't understand the system. I mean, if you breach your parole, surely what should happen is that you go back to the beginning of your sentence and you start all over again. Well, you're quite right, Mike. A lot of people don't understand the parole board system. Now, look, I'm generally a believer in the parole board system. Mm. I think we've all watched the Shawshank Redemption and yeah. we remember Morgan Freeman's character who must have committed some awful crime. And by the time he became an elderly man, he no longer posed a threat to the public and was released. What's particularly galling about Pitchfork is he went into prison at the age of 28. He was a mature man. And he came out of prison in September 2021 at the age of 61. Yeah. A man of working age, a man with decades of life ahead of him. You know, this isn't a man that's elderly, that's in his late 70s, 80s, maybe with terminal illness. You know, where we can close an eye and say, OK, he's only got a few weeks left to live. This is a man that's got decades of life ahead of him. And I think it's wrong for a man who's committed those sorts of murders to be released. And I'm very glad that today, finally, the parole board has seen sense and has agreed with me and it's agreed not to release this dangerous man. So it's a good result today for the people of South Leicestershire who have given me the comfort and the strength as their Member of Parliament to keep fighting this case over many years, which is what my team and I have been doing. Absolutely. Alberto, and I thank you for that, and thank you for coming on, and I'm sure we'll speak again. Alberto Costa there, uh, MP for South Leicestershire. He's been campaigning um, for a very long time uh, to try and make sure that this very dangerous offender, criminal, murderer, uh, doesn't really get out again. Lucy, let me ask you, I mean, I, I, I still fail to understand the way the parole system works in this country. We have many, many cases. We had uh, the killers of Jamie Bolger most recently. Um, and when they've been out once and recalled, I've always thought, surely they shouldn't get a second chance for parole, should they? Well, the parole board is almost a law unto itself. Yeah. And the idea is that we're aiming to rehabilitate yeah. people, that it isn't just about incarceration for life, that it's actually about trying mm. to see whether you can help these people lead uh, a different life. And very sadly, in many cases, the psychology of them just makes it very difficult for that to even take place. Yeah. There is a lot of psychotherapy 
therapeutic help that takes place within these prisons. Uh, but some people don't want to be helped. No, but there's certainly obviously people who are on the parole board, Sam, and I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you, um, who become sort of hoodwinked by some very clever and quite evil people, mm. you know, because this guy Pitchfork clearly was not rehabilitated, but he somehow had convinced the parole board mm. that he was no longer a danger to society. And, you know, what, less than two weeks later, he was back inside. I, it blows my mind how you can convince somebody, even a parole board, that you are no longer a danger to yeah. society when you raped and murdered yeah. well, children. Well, incredibly manipulative. Yeah. That's, but yeah. that is well, part exactly. of their That shouldn't that be their speciality. Shouldn't they know that they're well, exactly, manipulative? Well, exactly. Like, you know, when you do something like that, for example, you know... Um, you know, if, you, if you, a rapist in general, it's not. It's not about you know whether they find the person attractive. It's about power, and and with and with you know, you know people try to go for vulnerable persons, mm. and this is the case with Pitchfork. You know, he's clearly got. He clearly has that in his mind already, and whether he's convinced the parole board or not, he then went straight back and did it. And I don't you should, I don't you should, I don't to be honest with you with something like that. I don't need to get a first chance. No. Let alone a second chance. Let alone a third. No. But this is the trouble. I mean, Ella, you might you might be different on this. I don't know, but but you know, yes, there is a, a right for many criminals to be given a second chance. But I think there are some crimes that you just don't want to be yeah, giving like white, a white second collar crimes. For. Fine, if you'd like tax evasion, fine, yeah. give them a second chance. Like, right. but not 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 the rape and murder of children. No, never. I think so. No, I disagree. Um, I think that there we always have to hold that the possibility of rehabilitation is real, um, and I don't think we should ever give up on people. Um, but that said, that only can happen, a proper process of rehabilitation um, can only happen in a system that works. Yeah. And obviously the, we know that from you know, news that they're basically letting people out of jail early with some quite serious crimes um, because there simply isn't space or you know, with the fact that we know that mo a lot of rehabilitative work, work that happens in prison either doesn't happen or it's shoddy. Mm. Um, you know, leaving someone like that simply to be in a cell in their own doesn't necessarily magically make no. um, a good person. But of course, before of he was officially released, Pitchfork, he was in an open prison, mm -hmm. which nobody knew. So he was walking in and out of a town mm -hmm. for a good period of time, like three months, six months. And, and the, my worry with, with what you say is that it's, it's, in theory it sounds good, but if the manipulative person is very good at hoodwinking the parole board mm -hmm. and making them sure uh, that they're convinced that he's fine, then the system can't work like that either. Yeah, my worry is no. what is the psychiatric involvement mm. in a parole board? Do you actually have people sitting on that parole board mm. who are acutely aware of the manipulations that are being presented before yes. them? Because if you don't understand the psychology mm. of the person you're trying to assess, then you're, you are going to be hoodwinked. Right. This person would be an arch manipulator to begin with. Mm. Like, you know, so you know, a parole board is like, it's, it's small fry compared to what, you know, to the fact that they about... would have hidden their own, yeah. you know, peccadilloes like through their entire lives. And so. again, this isn't just about violence. This is about violence towards underage girls. And so mm. there's some form of sexual power around there yeah, as well. Yeah. You need to understand the illness and to understand that it mm. is an illness mm. rather than, as you say, just a crime that you might be able to right. atone for. And maybe even more reason then not to ever let them out if they can't be. Well, I, I, I'm afraid on that moment, on that bit, I am with Ella, that actually you, you have to hold out hope that people can be but this rehabilitated. Is, I mean, I also don't, I'm not, obviously some people are, have mental illnesses or disturbances or whatever, that means that they do terrible things. But I also think that we should, you know, look, as terrible as this sounds, I think it's worse to give up on an idea of rehabilitation and basically give in to the idea that, that there are people who are just sort of uniquely evil and that humanity contains within it a sort of in a, a loss of agency and an inability to reach anyone. Yeah. If we give up on the idea that we can try and reach people, 
then I think that leads to a very dark yeah. I'm not saying give up on it. I'm not saying like Pitchfork, what's the point? Yeah, but also Why I'm, bother? Not, I'm not saying give up on it, but I'm saying you also have to take into account the safety of the rest of the population. Yeah, which is and, why it sounds ridiculous yeah. that these parole board decisions were made. I mean, yeah. if you there has to be some ramifications for a parole board that allows someone out who immediately goes to a girls' school. Yeah. I mean, or maybe some of the parole board should, you know, but we're not allowed to the parole know. board that have had their own children murdered. Yeah, but perhaps, we're, we're not allowed to change their mind then. We're well, not no, allowed to know. That's victim-centred justice, which can be like, very dangerous. We're not allowed to know who's on the parole board. We're not allowed to find out who made the decision. Uh, it's all done in secret. And I'm never a fan of anything that's done in secret. And the more mm. transparency, the better. But I think they, they worry that people are going to turn up and demonstrate outside. Well, maybe they mm. should worry. You know, mob justice is not something we want. But if they keep letting people out who are dangerous, that's what they're going to get. But anyway, uh, let's move on, because uh, ITV this morning dossier is on the front page of The Sun. Uh, we had a long conversation with it a little bit earlier on. I'm interested in your guys' take on it. Steve Berry said, um, former BBC employee, well, what did Philip Schofield do wrong? And I think he's being slightly uh, disingenuous when he says that, because Philip Schofield obviously did quite a lot of things wrong. And according to The Sun, the staff were scared to speak out. Juniors feared losing their jobs. There's plenty of stories within television about what Philip Schofield was like to work with, the fact that he and Holly were never uh, ever able to see anybody below a certain level of producer and nobody was allowed to talk to them. And, and you know, the, the, the ITV dossier has basically found out that ITV didn't do anything wrong and it was all fine. Mm. Well, clearly it's not all fine, is it? Because the show's kind of blown up. Yeah, but they didn't... The thing is, the thing is with, the, um, with the ITV dossier is that they... If Philip was lying to all of them, and it doesn't matter how many times they asked him, if because I've I've I heard these rumors for years before this all mm. came out, and if they kept, if they maintained ask asking him and he still said no, I mean we all saw his um, relationship with Holly Willoughby implode in mm. front of us, yeah. and and there is no doubt in my mind that he had lied to her as well. But then, like you say, it's like what he did is was it the lying or was it the fact that he was having a secret relationship because if if it was consensual adults right. then what's what's the difference what's the point well i suppose the point that that we discussed at the time was that you know holly and phil were kind of everybody's favorite mm. you know cozy nice fuzzy kind of couple that yeah. were not married but kind of you pretended they were and they got yeah, on really well and then the, they jumped the queue the for the queen and that was the end of that well, you know? they, they weren't the first double act on TV one thinks of Selena Scott and Frank <laughs> Goff you know for decades ago that no. actually that's the the re, that's the shtick yeah. if you like for daytime TV and obviously I have to say full disclosure I was the agony aunt on uh, this morning yeah. for, a, for a couple of years. Right. And yeah, the rumours were there. But the, what that seems was probably, to be... No, no, the rumours were there for a long time. And also, the thing is, mm -hmm. lots of people that I know that, that were either working there or went there saw this guy, you know, in very close proximity to, to Philip Schofield. He went out, you know, from awards dues. With him. I shared stage. a cab with him after the National Television Awards. There you once. go. <laughs> um, you know, so it wasn't... I mean, it was more than just people kind of didn't know because he told them this, it wasn't true. I mean, I think that the thing is, if you're having, you know, what you do in your private life to a certain degree, I have no moralistic issue with him mm. having a gay relationship with a young man. I mean, you know, whatever. It does different strokes for different folks. I probably have an issue with him sort of turning the cheating on his wife and disappointment in his family <laughs> into some wonderful mm. kind of yeah. breakfast television right. moment. Mm. Um, but that isn't really what irks me about this. What irks me is that, as you know, with your one of your colleagues, Mike, ITV come down extremely hard and fast and extremely moralistically and really wagged the finger at us about certain issues. Mm. I'm talking about Piers and yeah. Meghan Markle. Um, but if something like this happens, and number one, they're slow to act. Number two, it looks like there was a huge amount of sort of crushing under the carpet, covering yeah. up, whether you want to call it lying or what. 
And so I think there's a sort of, I think the ITV bosses should be giving themselves a bit of a lecture now and learning a bit of a lesson to say, you know, don't throw stones in glass right. houses because right. there's a lot of people who won't take any more. Well, all the windows in the this morning glass house have been shattered. Mm. Yeah. Well, did, did you know. think there was? But, did you think there was a homophobia to it, like Elton John said? I think there was. I think you know there was an element to it where, you know, you sort of said there's two things happening here. There's a man's personal relationship, mm. which is really I don't care. It shouldn't mm. be anyone's business. Yes, but and no, there was a sort of witch hunting around the. Uh, particularly, I feel very, very sorry for the other person who's well, implicated in this. But, but, the, the, but that, yeah, the thing but, I care but, about is the is the. All right, I'm going to give you something else to care about in a minute as well, because Jerry Barton was on with Piers Morgan tonight. I don't really saw any of that when you were here, um, but he got into a terrible yes. spat uh, on Twitter or X, if you like, because he decided to have a go, not at women's football, but at women commentators on male football. Let's have a look at what he said to Piers. There is some female pundits out there who are capable and, and, and have earned credibility over a who? long period. Who? But also there's lots at this moment. There's, there's a Well, I don't want to name names. I'm not here to name names. There's, there's lots of good people. Um, but also the majority are poor and the standards well, are poor. Give me one. And it's factually incorrect information. So, Jerry Barton, never a, an uncontroversial figure. Uh, back in the news, I'm not even sure if he's got a job managing at the moment because he normally gets a bit worked up and gets fired. Um, he basically said that he doesn't think women uh, who have not played football at the high level that men have played it at, uh, they shouldn't have any business commenting on uh, the tactics of the game. And he said he quite likes fem uh, uh, female uh, football and he quite likes watching it. It's quite entertaining, but he said it's just not the same and so they shouldn't be doing it. But I used to get this when I worked at Talk Sport because there's some footballers who think because you've never played football at professional level, mm. you shouldn't have a view, which is clearly nonsense. And also the flip it? side of that is that if you have, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can actually talk about it coherently uh, or with any no. actual insights. So actually it's very rare to be a, an actual professional. Yeah. And I would think I mean, someone are, like Shane Warne, yeah. absolutely superb cricketer, right. was also a brilliant yes. commentator, but there doesn't actually have to be... There's not that many footballers who are good at commentating and good at giving so, analysis. Also, like, Jerry I, Barton I, is a very smart guy, um, and I think he knows what he's doing. And I don't, but I don't agree with him on that. But it was so patronising. Yeah. The, the idea that women actually can't comment on something, in effect, that's what I he think was he saying. was mostly, though, talking about women professionals who have turned their, their, also, their, prefer, their sport into, into commentary. I prefer watching women's football anyway, simply because you don't get the racist chance. You know, people who go to see a, a women's football game aren't going to, you know, throw a banana on the pitch, for example, aren't going aren't really to shout homophobic abuse. It's, they don't really do that anymore. Of course, faking of course it for a penalty. Do. Well, exactly, because, they, you know, because, they, because, because they're female professionals that, that you know, that, that get on with the game. But however, I have, I have friends that do watch male football, unlike I do, who were like, well, it's, it's less rough, it's less exciting, it's less this, but it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Like any surely anybody anybody who follows a game can can commentate on it, surely. Well, apologies to cretins like Joe Barton, but I'm gonna be one of those women that knows nothing about football, so I talk <laughs> about football now. But you know, there's I think I, I think it'd be a bit snooty about uh, football fans, actually, Sam. Um, <laughs> they don't throw bananas on pitches anymore. Um, and they did. Very few they, of them actually. Did and they the first didn't place. in their masses previously. Yeah. I think there's an interesting. I think there's outside of. I don't care what Joey Barton has to say about women. I don't care what he has to say about women who comment about football. He's a small man. Um, but there's an interesting thing happening around the sort of politicisation of football. Yeah. Which is that you feel like you have to say yes. Um, I, I love the England team and the Lioness. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm. and, you know, in actual fact, a lot of it just comes down to taste. A lot of it just comes yeah, down yeah. to... And he did you know, make that point. He said, you know, you're made to feel like some kind of pariah 
um, if you don't like women's football. And the unfortunate thing is that rather than having a sort of normal discussion about football funding, publicity, whatever you like, sexism in the sport, whatever you like, mm. you end up having this crass debate where you it takes someone like Joey Parton to come out and say, well, I'm just going to say it, as if he's saying what everyone's thinking. Of course, he's not. No. He's the crass end of it. But there is something to talk about the politicisation of football, censorship of football fans, you know, sanitising of the sport, sort of yeah. skyrocket, skyrocketing prices, all the rest of it. Taking the knee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they have, but they have a lot. Taking the knee and not holding had. a minute silence for the, um, the people who were butchered by Hamas. Yeah, exactly. Just let people play football and let people listen to who they want and comment. But in a way, the, the reason why Joey Barton's comments are so offensive is because actually, because he, when he speaks, quite a lot of people listen to him mm. because he does have a track record. And he's actually creating an obstacle, a barrier to entry for women who are entitled to be able to speak and commentate. Well, you've probably and got more chance, to be honest. You've probably got more chance of getting on match today if you're a woman than if you're Joey Barton. But let's come back to that later on. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stay tuned, uh, because we're going to take a daily trip to the world of woke. Uh, today it's about Doctor Who, uh, and more from the papers as well, including a big riot going on up in Manchester against Chanel, believe it or not. This is Talk TV. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. Yep, they're doing it again. The wokest just can't leave well enough alone. I mean, what the hell is wrong with them? Only last week, Doctor Who hit the headlines again because its 60th birthday episode was not only marked by the return of David Tennant, but by the inclusion of a trans alien. And that's not an alien that's transitioning from scary to friendly. No, it was instead an alien that insisted on being called by its preferred pronoun. I can't remember what it was. Uh, this week, the Doctor Woke crowd, though, have dreamed up yet another way to annoy all sensible people, including the fans that actually watch the damn rubbish. The producers, guided by writer Russell T. Davis, are obviously enjoying their saintly status as they work so hard for those overlooked minorities that need exposure. As if. This week, they've decided to reinvent Isaac Newton. Described as a mathematician, polymath, physicist, alchemist, theologian and author, uh, one characteristic rarely mentioned, though, is that he was actually white. And that's because most people don't give a stuff what colour he was. Tragically, though, that's not how the BBC sees it, because they decided to cast Nathaniel Curtis in the role of the Time Lord's co-star. He may well be a fine actor, but he's mixed race. He's not white, and therefore he's not Isaac Newton. Not difficult, this, is it? And if you're wondering why the world of woke loves it, just imagine what they would say if somebody cast Leonardo DiCaprio as Barack Obama. Soon they'll be calling it Dr. Y. The World of Woke. <sighs> I don't know what they're doing at Doctor Who, but it's Bring going back down the... Tom Baker. Going That's down the gurgle as faster than you can say anything. Now, listen, there's a couple of great stories I want to talk to you about. Um, one going on in Manchester at the moment. Chanel, for some reason, decided that they were going to take over a street in Manchester and have a little fashion affair... Uh, invited the likes of uh, Kim Kardashian and various other models to come and waltz up and down. And they told the locals, right, what we're going to do is we're going to actually get rid of uh, you completely. <laughs> and if you want to do anything at all, please hide behind the curtains. <laughs> do not come out. Do not look out the window because we're making a film. Yeah. Uh, do not come out on a balcony. Um, we don't want to see any Mancunians at all. We just want to have Chanel transform your horrible, grubby little town uh, into something <laughs> fabulous. But it's failed, I'm afraid, because the locals are a bit revolted. And apparently, even as we speak, they're belting out karaoke songs from uh, the pubs <laughs> nearby. Is revolted or revolting? Revolted and revolting. <laughs> um, and they're holding a protest rally right outside where the catwalk's going on, uh, which is great fun. 
Absolutely brilliant. So Chanel, um, if you was the, if this was the BBC, I'd give them the finger. <laughs> they should, if, they, if they're telling them to stay in the doors of their house, they should they should pay them though. Surely, I mean, in like, clothes. You know, yeah, it's, in, it's, it's I not, want frocks. Well, I would no, well, I don't want so frocks. Many. I want to wouldn't fit into them. Don't go on your balcony for the next two hours. Here's hundred pounds. There was but, all these. There was all these sort of memes. That's even it, worse, isn't it? Imaginings of Kim Kardashian tottering down in heels into the local spoons. It's like a bizarre <laughs> idea. The that, yeah, but the, but there's you know there's something about these. In particular, Chanel's done it quite often. Actually, they've kind of tried to do catwalks with protests. Previously, tried to do something around the Me Too movement. They keep sort of get they're incredibly tone deaf right. in terms of like using get wrong. the grubby streets of Manchester yes. as a sort of. You know, there's a, there's that film, done. yeah, it's like sort of dilapidated yes. chic, and you think, okay, it reminds me when they hang hoofed on a minute, all, it we reminds, like it here. Reminds me when they hoofed all the homeless out of Windsor before, yes, um, before Harry right. and Meghan's wedding. Yeah, nobody knows where they went. But apparently there's a sex shop in this, in this street, and the guy was apparently <laughs> heard to say, well, I think I might have Kim Kardashian's sex tape if anybody wants it. <laughs> uh, they just popped out and we'll That's it. not how she got famous. <laughs> how dare you? I know. Um, Daily Telegraph, a couple of good stories on the front here. Um, I know this one is going to affect Sam the most. Half of first-time buyers in their 20s need the bank of mum and dad, says here. First-time home purchases for buyers uh, in their 20s. 45% of them, uh, up to the age of 29, said they received loans, cash gifts, and all sorts of other things from the parents. I'm not giving my kids any money to buy a house. Well, I wouldn't have been able to buy my house if it wasn't for my mother. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, did they I'm, give you the old money? I'm, I mean, I'm not text. necessarily in my twenties. Maybe, maybe thirties. Let's. Say. I was being kind. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but this, but this is the this is the state of the housing market at the moment. You, it's yeah. so impossible for a younger person. Like, I mean, if you think about our parents, well, my parents, they, I mean, they must. Have, I think they bought their first house for maybe like nine thousand yeah. pounds or something back in the day. Yeah, but they were only making like. Four thousand pounds, probably. Well, yeah, that's, that's but that's thing. that's still that's still half the amount of the entire house. Like you know, the, today, like you know, our flat is you know two fifty or something like that. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I wish I was wearing. But it is in Wellington Garden like City, as we've noted before. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm amazed that you can you can sell the one you've got. But I mean, that's another story. <laughs> we're first time buyers, actually, so we're just coming from a rental property. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> but the point is, is that you know, um, it's true. Unless you get left a property nowadays, mm. uh, or you did buy one a long time ago, it is pretty. Expensive. Yeah, but the problem that a lot of mum and dads have is that they are very asset rich, but yeah. cash poor. Right. So in fact, they can't even help their children either because they've got this property which has possibly escalated in you but, know multiple right. times. But they're living in it, yes. And they can't if they sell it, they're possibly selling it at, at, not at the rate that they want because mm. obviously with the mortgage fiasco earlier this year, yes. prices have been slightly dicey. I mean, that's the other thing: the mortgage rates are going to be pretty high. Well, hopefully, the old people out into a one bed and like and, and sell it and spread the wealth. Surely. Well, if like, you know, if Labour get in, you just want to do a house Give me your house. You. Yeah, if Labour get in, they'll probably start taxing people for having big houses, won't they? So the council tax will quadruple. Well, that's to be fair, that's what my dad always said because my dad was a Conservative councillor actually, yeah. and he always used to say, "Oh, you know, they'll they'll look up, they'll they they won't look after people like us, etc." Well, but, that was you know, one I of think, the reasons why I, in Wandsworth and Westminster the council tax was so low because yeah. they used to be Tory strongholds, but of right. course they're not anymore. But I think, let's yeah. be honest, we're going to have a, a Labour government next year. That's you know, that's pretty much that's yeah, pretty much you know, pretty... said and done. How, and, and I and I think personally, I mean, with regards to the housing crisis or anything else, it's time to give somebody else a chance because the Tories are making such a hash of it. Yeah. Give somebody else a go. But, like, they can't be, make any worse. Well, well, actually, they can. Are exactly the same. I mean, housing. Exactly. Yeah. In terms of actually putting bricks in the ground, the Labour Party and the Conservative mm. Party, I think, literally have almost the same number of thousands yeah. that they won't promise yes. to make. <laughs> so. Exactly right. Mm. Um, 
And on the, we've literally got 30 seconds to go. Ousting Prime Minister would be insanity, says Tory chairman. They're already talking about it. Mm. So it'll be done probably by about March. Mm. Insanity, but they're insane. Yeah, they're, they I mean, are. is anything that they've done in the last few months or a year sane? The problem if they, is, if they were they, it, may, it may very well be something that they want, but in terms of the electorate, actually the, mm. the person who gets the most... Most number of votes in any poll is don't know. Yeah. If there was another leadership, if there was another leadership challenge, there should be a general election called instantly. Yeah. Like, I think I mean, they're like the they... pope. Well, These think, people yeah. are like the pope. Yeah. You know, a puff of smoke. Minus, the, minus the white smoke. I know it's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, listen. Thank you everybody for for having such good sports. Uh, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Um, thank you to Ella. Thank you to Sam. Thank you to Lucy. Uh, I'll see you. Uh, see, it says it again. It says I'll see you tomorrow at nine. I won't see you tomorrow at nine. I'll see you tomorrow at seven uh, with Plank of the Week. Uh, and then it will be Nadine Dorries at eight. And then you will still see me at 11.30 coming up with uh, The World According to Mike Graham. It's been a hell of a week. The Tories are still in charge, but it doesn't look like they really are in charge. And according to the Daily Telegraph, there might be somebody else in charge. Let's hope we've still got a government by Monday. <laughs>